2: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series discussing Simon Reynolds' book Energy Flash, A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at LetItRollCast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan talk about Chapter 6 of Reynolds' book, Feed Your Head, Intelligent Techno, Ambient, and Trance. Email us at letitrollpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again joined by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture. And the book's so big it nearly knocked over my microphone. So this is the kind of thing we're battling with, Ryan. And I know this one's going to be a tough one for you because Simon Reynolds, not a fan of trance, the subject of our chapter this week. And did I did I get the title? It's Feed Your Head, Intelligent, Techno, Ambient, and Trance. And this is your jam, right, Ryan?
1: Well, you know, it didn't hurt too much because uh, once again, Trance being the bastard, uh, embarrassing child of dance music somehow uh, just ended up being a bit of a, a of a side side show addition to what it really is more of a, a concentration on uh, what 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 is what at least Warp Records tried to coin as electronic listening music, which is just everything that was made by electronic artists that wasn't really dance floor facing, which is, a, you know, a, a, an under discussed topic when it comes to these rave books. You know, uh, our last book was all about DJs. So obviously you're not going to get any of it in there. And this one here, you'd think because it's rave culture, it might ignore that, but no, Simon Reynolds realizes it's what goes on off the dance floor is just as important. Sometimes musically as what's going on on it. And he spends a lot of time talking about this and really trance again, just kind of gets thrown in at the end there. He makes an interesting point by saying that, that trance is kind of a reaction to the scene going hardcore and then going chill out. And then they met in the middle with with this more relaxed kind of trance music that ended up in all the clubs. And I thought, you know, we'll talk about that when we get to that point in the chapter. But I thought that was a, a very fascinating cultural observation as to what was going on musically at the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Reynolds makes no bones about being very partisan for hardcore, which we talked about last week, and against um, intelligent techno or armchair techno or ambient techno, whatever you want to call it. Although he does praise several albums. And this is where his kind of raucous background comes shows, I think, because I've been kind of wondering where are the DJs as we go through this whole book. And I would like to have seen more of a focus on who were the big DJs, where were they playing, what kind of stuff were they playing? And you've pointed at me at some mixes of, you know, some of the important DJs, Carl Cox and Mixmaster, Max, is that or Mike? Um, we'll, we'll talk about him in a minute. He's got some great quotes, but Reynolds, you know, definitely makes this partisan case. Although he he gives plenty of respect uh, to the good stuff from this era, but he also starts at the end of the chapter he has a quote that I want to start with. He says the hardcore white label boom had saturated the dance scene with derivative, poorly produced tracks composed of nth generation samples, and there was a gap crying out to be filled. So that's what this stuff is responding to. And I feel like a lot of Reynolds' dismissals of this whole genre could be applied to hardcore or any other genre. Like the failings of a genre are always tied in with the key elements that make it appealing in the beginning. And it always runs out of steam and it always looks bad uh, when the imitators flood in and, and the derivative artists are dominating. So, And also, you know, he's coming from a point a vantage point that I can identify with because it was my generation's perspective that hard rock and Black Sabbath was very important and prog rock and Pink Floyd and King Crimson were very unimportant and bad. And I think time has shown us that both of those genres are very strong and Prague has continued to have influence, not just over the ambient techno scene, but in heavy metal and all kinds of places. And And the Prague artists are still going strong. So
1: yeah, it's it really seems like uh, you know I'm not even going to say that Simon Reynolds kind of dismisses all of all of this music because you can tell the stuff that he loves he really loves. I think there's. Uh, th- there's kind of a thing that happens when you really enjoy something from a certain genre, you elevate it above everything else. And the other stuff, you know, it's uh, separating the wheat from the chaff. And you just say that there's so much chaff, uh, that he might seem like a bit of a hater on the genre, but I mean, man, you can, you can really tell there's some love for Aphex twin. There's some love for the orb. Um, yep. And, uh, so, and I I think that's just to be expected when, uh, when, when somebody with really strong musical opinions shares everything and, uh, Simon Reynolds is never afraid to give his opinion. And I I love it because, you know, sometimes, sometimes you completely agree. And other times you actually sit there kind of shocked that he was willing to like call out this artist for being garbage.
0: Yeah, I know. And, and, uh, but he is, I, I think pretty even handed and even some of the bands he really slags, he will acknowledge when he liked certain singles, but, you know, like we said, the it was so cheap and easy to get in and make a hardcore record there in 91, 92, that the scene got flooded and there was this opportunity. And Warp Records, who had been kind of an early bleep and bass label in the north of England, comes out with this artificial intelligence compilation that – Reynolds zeroes in on it and the cover art. And that's another thing, you know, it had cover art. It wasn't just a white label and it wasn't just a 12 inch. It was a full album. And the cover features this robot relaxing on its couch all by itself with Kraftwerk's Autobahn and Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon albums visible. So no surprise for Kraftwerk to be a major um, reference point for electronic music makers. Obviously, one of the great, we've talked about the many, many times on this series. Pink Floyd, a little bit unusual, but that kind of gets the cross where we're talking about. And that, you know, Reynolds calls it Dance music for the sedentary and stay at home. So but I don't know that that's fair. I don't know that they're trying to make dance music. They're just making electronic music. And he also calls it a soundtrack for the raved out. Those who had given up on or grown out of raves vision of mass communion and social mixing. And that's, uh, again, a recurring phenomenon. I mean, lots of people have this vision of everybody's going to get together and and we all love this music and it's going to be so great. But whether it's, you know, the hippies in the 60s or uh, the original disco makers, David Mancuso at the loft, et cetera. Whenever you have this vision and you create something that's got mass appeal, it's a whole different ballgame when the masses actually show up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, people ruin everything, don't they? (laughs)
0: <laughs> that they do, that they do, and so this ideology, or I mean, this genre, kind of had an ideology that that Reynolds quotes their their manifesto as no breakbeats, no lycra, and then you know he says by implication that proposes the proposed the purging of hip hop influence from pure Detroit techno, and that the anti lycra thing was blatant snobbery against techno tracies these you know johnny come lately females who, who are dancing in their lycra outfits and he says in four words they conflated racism classism and sexism into a rallying cry for a mostly male connoisseur elite and i think that's why he's really suspicious of this genre and
1: um, yeah, this is this is where the rubber meets the road. No brake beats, no lycra is something that would show up on flyers in the UK sometimes. And it was basically kind of a a, a stay away message to all the people, or, or at the very least, kind of a hoity, you know, uh, noses up attitude towards the rave scene. I think there was probably more crossover than you might expect between between the two crowds, but they made it clear what was going on uh, behind their doors. You know what I mean? And so this is this is the positioning that all of this music kind of had was it says, this is garbage, and we don't want it. We don't want your garbage music. We don't want your garbage people.
0: Yep, and it reminds me of the notes on the flyers in the Detroit techno scene back in the 80s, where the upper-middle-class black kids on the west side of Detroit did not want what they called the jits, no jits. They did not want the east side, the ghetto city, urban black kids from Detroit coming to their parties. They couldn't stop them. Um, But that desire to exclude kind of Complicated the Detroit scene. But let's go ahead yeah. here. Oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, you never really realize how much like uh, some simple warning like that on a flyer can kind of change the perception of how uh, welcome somebody is. We used to have no drugs, thugs or markers. And thinking back, I'm like, OK, well, if I was like a black kid living in my predominantly white city and I saw it said no thugs, what I think that that applied to me and the markers thing was clearly the graph crews, which again was a primarily black Uh, group so all of a sudden I'm looking back at all these years where I had this thing on my flyer because it was just what was on all the flyers and you kind of realize shit I was kind of perpetuating that kind of racist classist thing as well
0: yeah it's hard to escape living in the society and being in a being embodied in a physical form um, gets you instantly entangled into all kinds of ugliness but let's go ahead and hear our first song this is FX Twin and it's XTAL how do you pronounce that I uh, just extal. Extal. All right. This is Aphex Twin. Xtal. And that was Apex Twin or Apex Twin. I'm not sure how to say it. Apex
1: Twin. Apex. Apex.
0: All right. So, and that was Cornwall's on Richard James, who started out with a number of banging hardcore tracks. Uh, Didgeridoo was one that that gets a lot of talk. And I even remember that one because it was just so goofy. Like, you know, I remember somebody playing it for me at a record store and telling me look what the rave kids are into didgeridoos, cuz that had been like a joke we had running for years like when are didgeridoo's going to going to break into the
1: pop scene and and here it was uh, and and so he's he's kind of responsible for all sorts of in- interesting things i remember there being a lot of controversy over when uh, Napster or whatever was pre-Napster, all those Napster type uh, programs came out and there was all this Aphex Twin on there for Aphex Twin Pac-Man remix. And everyone was like, no, that's not Aphex Twin. But it turns out, according to Simon Reynolds, Powerpill, which was the, which is the artist that did the, the the Pac-Man remix that was so over everywhere, labeled as Aphex Twin, Powerpill is one of Aphex Twin's remix names. So he's responsible for one of the most ridiculous... Uh, Uh, you know, hardcore remixes out there. And it's one of those things where Apex twin is shrouded in so much mystery and, and, and so much misinformation, honestly, that it's really hard to keep up with what's true and what's not as far as what he was actually doing and what he was just telling people he was doing to mess with them. So it's always, this one of those funny things about him is that he's extremely serious, but I've never seen somebody with more of a pro wrestling style. Like, uh, like fake kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's completely, completely, exactly.
0: Yeah, and and that added a lot to his mystique because he's one of these artists, I mean, because I know I bought a CD of, of the first ambient music collection in 93 or 94, and I was in no way hip to the scene, but somehow Apex Twin surfaced to my awareness enough that I took a flyer on an album and dug it, you know, for, for chill out music, which, um... You know it was what it was for but he like like he said he he started out as in the hardcore scene and then quickly um got intelligent and serious uh, when which was the right moment to do it you know like the warp records steve beckett talked to reynolds and he he said that he had noticed that dance-oriented labels seemed like they had about a year a lifespan like there were mayflies they they got hot if they were lucky and got to the top and then they fell you know and so he realized that they needed to get more in an album and artist oriented direction and not just be slaves to the dance floor and he also kept finding tracks by groups like B12, Plaid, and Speedy J that, quote, just didn't fit on 12 inches. and But put together could be a really good album, a la Kraftwerk or Pink Floyd, which were the th- kind of albums that he respected. And he, he also said it felt like somebody should pay attention to the production quality and the artwork. So there's a tip by these people to make it something lasting and not just a disposable treadmill. And even though the disposable treadmill as a meta entity has this incredible power and life force. If you're one of the micro entities in that treadmill, you know, life is short, nasty, brutal, and short. And so he wanted to, you know, add a little uh, lifespan to, to what they were doing. And, um, you know, that mix master Morris, that was the DJ. I was getting his name wrong. He, he's another ideologue from this period. And and he, had you know statements like i have no interest in doing anything with even an ounce of mozzarella by that he means cheesy anthems or samples of kids people talking on kids shows or high-pitched vocals and break beats you know which many people felt were played out and and you know, he he also said, Morris said, IT is the opposite of stupid hardcore, IT meaning intelligent techno. And it, it was a quote, Reynolds calls it a struggle between atmospheric mind food against thoughtless rhythmic compulsion. And so, you know, you had Warp and also other labels like Tresor out of Germany, Infonet, Iridial, Beyond. Um, it, it becomes a whole movement. And he singles out, we'll talk about Apex one more in a minute, but he singles out Uh, Tecker, which I've learned to pronounce since last week. Yeah, I
1: I looked it up too as part of my extensive prep for this episode. Thank you. We
0: we appreciate it, and hopefully the listeners do as well. Um, but Sean Booth and Rob Brown, they consider themselves avant-garde electro. So they had come out of Manchester. They had been kind of aspiring b-boys through the 80s, and they were into electro and graffiti and mantronics, which is a really, I think, undersung hip-hop act from the 80s. But they had a big acid house conversion during the second summer of love and um, started – making techno and they were an album band in cannabula was one of them amber was another one and try repeat i repeat i was a third one also try repete repete thank you thank you uh the garbage eps and the anvil vapor vapor uh ep and Reynolds has a pretty interesting. He talks about how one of them was an architecture student, which is something they always talk about with Pink Floyd as well. I think the drummer Dave Mason was an architecture student, and that their music reflects this sort of architectural structure. And but his his classic quote about Altecker is, "What's most interesting in their work is the absence of heart and humanity." <laughs>
1: So. Yeah, they're they're definitely a very robotic like if you if you're looking for an evolution for kind of where we started with craftwork and where this genre of electronic listening music, which is what Warp Records was trying to uh, codify this music as uh, uh, a really good place to kind of start and sit down and, and hear the kind of sonic. Scapes that they're that they're trying to trying to carve and and there's a definite uh, feel to it that is very robotic and clean and he talks about the sound almost sounding like your humanity bounces off the the straight edges that there's no real imperfection it's just clean straight blank music
0: yeah and my kid and his boy scout friends hated it when I was playing it in the car the other day I I have to say that they've been Somewhat open-minded of more dance-oriented tracks, but the the ambient listening stuff <laughs> they did not get at all. Well, it was so, a
1: tough sell even at the time. I remember when Nine Inch Nails put out the Perfect Drug single, and he he released a bunch of uh, remixes alongside of it. It had like Autecker and Meet Beat Manifesto and a, a couple of these other uh, really uh, big names in this in this kind of era's genre of of intelligent techno or intelligent drum and bass depending on which track it, it, we were listening to and uh, a lot of it did not really hit the mark even with you know i don't want to say like nine inch nails fans were, were more uh gourmand music fans than, than the average but you would have thought that they would have been a bit more adventurous and open to this kind of thing but uh i remember there being a lot of negative reaction to that single and uh because it just wasn't it's just it's too something or other
0: yeah, it's 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 difficult stuff to, to interface with. But if you like head music, um, I think I think, you know, some people really regard that stuff highly. So, you know, check it out. And then there's also the Black Dog, which also made stuff as plaid and balil. It was a trio, Ed Handley, Andy Turner and Ken Downey. And they had a another ideological band. Their mission was to, quote, fill a hole in music. Acid House had been squashed by the police and Rinky Dinky Italo House was getting played everywhere. Emotion had left out the window. So they were trying to bring that back. And they, they were another group that created a mystique through remoteness. They didn't do live shows, they avoided interviews. A lot of their discography was in print on very limited editions, uh, and in print very brief periods of time. They were also ironically pioneers of cyberspace that had a bbs a bulletin board black dog towers in the early 90s and for me when i was listening to it and i'm glad reynolds pointed out it sounded a lot like hardcore lots of samples looped breakbeats breakbeats oscillator riffs um you know so they weren't again it wasn't like a really bright line i mean almost all of these artists kind of crossed Both sides in the hardcore and the intelligent dancer, electronic listening side.
1: Well, the important the important uh, feature of it was the not not the snobbery, because it wasn't the snobbery across the board. But I mean, like the problem is when you're going to call something intelligent techno, the distinction between mindless hardcore and so-called intelligent techno needed to be drawn. It needed to be made and maybe even needed to be said. But with a name like that, it didn't take long for for that genre to kind of climb up its own ass. And yeah. uh, stuff stuff like Black Dog, uh, part of what made them big is the fact that they were, the, everything was kind of so exclusive that all of the stuff was so hard to get. There was a certain amount of exclusivity that raised it above. And, and as you noted, uh, the end musical product isn't actually so far removed from what these people are railing against it's just done in a more sophisticated manner which is really it's you know it's about how you're packaging it and how you're presenting it and what the pr is for it
0: yeah absolutely and and you know if you look into the history of of race wars for example it's always the races or the ethnic groups that are the closest cousins that have the most vicious uh, wars, You know, whether it's Northern Ireland or someplace like uh, former Yugoslavia, where the Croats, Slavs, uh, Serbs, and Bosnians, totally ethnically identical, speak very similar, almost identical languages, just use different alphabets and go to different religious organizations, you know. But so hardcore and intelligent techno are, are very closely related, hence the extreme uh, grief. And I wouldn't say it was even that extreme. It's not like punk and metal in the 80s, where there's actual fights I mean uh, th- this was I think a bit more feat than that I'm sure there were some conflicts but
1: yeah despite the weighty implication of the name people around me at the time didn't take labels like intelligent techno or intelligent drum and bass too personally like uh on flyers it would say intelligent techno and and nobody would be like are you calling the rest of this techno stupid and uh like let me tell you if there was one scene where you could get your ass kicked for specifying you played intelligent drum and bass over regular drum and bass it's the drum and bass scene but you put that label on the flyers and everybody's okay with it because it's a very specific distinctive sound Uh, and and so people people took it more as a label as to what to expect and they they didn't take it personally as a as a huge affront which is you know kind of surprising in the in the nightlife scene honestly that that we're able to do it and how hoity-toity people get about you know calling something a future sound of london or a future sound of detroit or something but people took the intelligent label uh as just a distinction as opposed to you know so much of a of a diss
0: Cool. And let's hear a little bit of intelligent tech. Now, this is the orb, supernova at the end of the universe. And that was The Orb, Supernova, at The End of the Universe. And this is another group led by DJ Alex Patterson who had punk rock bona fides. He, he was a roadie for Killing Joke and um, frequently came on stage to do Sex Pistol songs for encores for him. So – and and he starts out – he's in the scene pretty early on. He's DJing by 1989 um, playing a VIP area in Paul Oakenfold's Land of
1: Oz night. I take a drink every time Paul Oakenfold comes up. <laughs>
0: right. Don't forget it. But he, you know, Oakenfold had a night at the ma- massive club heaven which we've been talking about all the way back to the high energy episode of the Brewster and Broughton book and this was the acid house night and they had a little chill out room in a VIP area and Patterson was playing this eclectic mix at low volume He was playing Brian Eno, Pink Floyd, The Eagles, War, 10cc, Mike Oldfield, Tubular Bells uh, with multi-screen video projections so he was kind of a precursor of this whole chill out scene and then when he, he becomes the orb uh, brings Chris chris weston aka thrash on and and makes it a group um they are pioneers of of this chill out scene but let's go back a little bit and talk a bit more about apex twin so he starts out as uh dropping these hardcore tracks and then his story starts to emerge and he's kind of He's not as bad as like young Bob Dylan who made up wild tales, you know, kid, Jewish kid from Minnesota who's claiming he's, you know, from Gallup, New Mexico and riding the rails and all this kind of nonsense. James stuck closer to the facts, but he really emphasized that he was this child prodigy from Cornwall. And Cornwall, if you don't know, is this very remote town in southern London. I think the Wicker Man movie is set there. It's It's old, old Celtic – Um, Southwest Britain and very remote out of the way sort of place i think basil faulty's torquay isn't too far from there like this is this is backwater and he tells a story on himself that claims that like at age three he was treating a piano which if you don't know what that means that's what like the avant-garde composer john cage was doing when he would put like paper clips on the strings of the pianos or pieces of paper to change the way that it sounded and um, he was also his early DJing experiences. He was like putting sandpaper on the turntable and rubbing it against the uh, stylus, which is something that John Cage had done as well. You know, at age 12, he's taking apart synthesizers and rebuilding them. He goes to King's University, Kingston University, and studies electronics so he can he can do more of this and then he claims that when he first heard techno and acid house he was blown away not because the music was so revolutionary to him but because he was like hey that's exactly what i've been doing and i don't know that what he had been doing was exactly that but his first album selected ambient works 1985 to 1992 which says
1: like look look how
0: long i've been doing this um it's definitely state-of-the-art "Quote intelligent techno for um, you know 1992."
1: Yeah, he and- gets away with a lot of the the genius stuff because the music uh, the music lives up to the hype. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that is just so uh, inherently Apex twin that you hear it and you, you can't help but know that it's him yet. It's so out of the box and strange that, you know, it barely sounds like music sometimes. So, but you can't deny he's like one of the premier avant-garde electronic music composers out there. I'm just a, a bigger, I was a bigger fan of his ambient 85 to 92 stuff when, when he was just trying to kind of re- reclaim, uh, the sound that was emerging at the time as his from before it happened, that was my favorite because it was almost kind of uh, it was the most he ever played within the rules, I feel. And uh, so you get your most coherent view of Aphex Twin Music, which to me was my favorite. I just I don't have a lot of use in my day to day listening for John Cage level avant garde electronic noise.
0: And not many, not many people do. And also it was analog noise frequently and also the famous four minutes of silence piece. But yeah, I, I don't know that a lot of people listen to John Cage, but the ideas that John Cage was playing with have been very influential uh, in rock from Velvet Underground, you know, and all kinds of film composers have, have used elements of that stuff. So the avant-garde has a way of, of bubbling back in when, just when you think you can safely dismiss it. But yeah, Aphex Twin, uh, his own unique thing. And also... He comes out of the gate with these singles like Didgeridoo that are hardcore dance hits. But then his analog bubble bath, 12 inch in 1991, according to Reynolds, quote, announced a new softcore direction in techno while displaying um, that while he had already displayed, he was no slouch when it came to industrial strength, hardcore. So, yeah, Richard James is somebody who can do it all and did it all. And, and you know, another one of these creators who's so creative, he uses aliases like polygon window and afx to put out releases because otherwise he'd be flooding the market with AFX twin stuff so he had surfing on Sinewaves album by polygon window right on the heels of selected ambient work so he's yeah a big deal once you get into him but let's get into this chill out scene i was talking a little about with the orb um that another The second wave of these chill-out scenes were the space-time parties at Cable Street in the East End in London with DJ Mixmaster Morris. And um, again, this is for after you've been out dancing all night, after the X is starting to wear off, it's nice to either go home in your bedroom, maybe in your car on the drive home, or maybe in a quiet club setting put on some mellow music and talk to some friends while you're enjoying the come down and still can't sleep. And so that was kind of the market this hit and it becomes a whole thing around 92 with new age house or ambient house and um, a track Reynolds uh, pegs for features, is Sueno Latino's track of the same name, which is just a dance remix of Manuel Gutching's, uh, Proto techno masterpiece E2 to E4, which Ka-Ching is somebody who's best known as an acid rocker, but in the early 80s he had gone totally electronic and, and made a whole album E2 E4 um, that was a big influence on this on the synth pop scene in the 80s and now uh, the the ambient house scene. And you know we talked about 808 State in the Manchester episode, but their track Pacific State was a big part of this chill out or ambient house movement. The Grids, Flotation, Quadrophenia's Paradise. But the KLF, our old friends that we did a whole episode back in the Brewster and Broughton days, their album Chill Out from February of 1990 was a big landmark in this ambient house thing. And again, there's a Pink Floyd reference on the cover.
1: And again, you don't really know if they're being 100 percent serious or not, because it's it's a great chill out album. But it's also a bit of a joke because uh, there's, you know, out of out of all the most stereotypical elements that you would expect to find in an electronic chill out album. This this one has them all and it does them almost to the point where you have to assume that they are taking the piss. Like, oh, we're going to we're going to put this train sample in here, but not just it's going to come right through the station, baby.
0: Yep, indeed. And we'll talk about it more after this break to hear from our sponsors. And thing about the KLF chill out is that it's got all these samples, but the, yeah, the thing about it, it is tongue in cheek and it is a joke, but it's also a great chill out album and it's a great listening album, but like all their stuff, they took it out of print in the mid nineties and they recently re-released a version of it, but it, it's missing a ton of the samples, and those samples are so integral to the piece that I highly recommend tracking down the original 1990 edition if you can. Um, well worth getting it for those original samples.
1: It really and, feels like everything that KLF touches, uh, that's what happens to it because there's also the orbs have a, a huge, ever-growing, pulsating brain that rules from the center of the ultra world. And uh, the KLF helped Alex Patterson with with that specific track on – And and it's one of those things where, at least in my country, it is blacked out on all the streaming things, because I guess if the KLF are involved, there was definitely some illegal sampling going on (laughs) that that just will never be never be untangled. And good luck.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is, again, worth uh, trying to track down this stuff. I I spent months um, chasing one of their albums on eBay and uh and and it never did arrive i I was so happy to finally win the bid and then and then it never arrived when they shipped it so i had to buy it again but uh and then i don't know if it's worth the hunt you know you get it you you spend months hunting for these things and then you listen to it three four times you know and, and there's so many other things to listen to it's hard to say if it was worth it but i guess it's the chase more than the catch but
1: the chase and don't forget the satisfaction of the badass collection
0: uh, this is true. This is true. But I'm always liquidating my stuff because I don't have the storage space. So. <laughs> But, you know, anyway, be that it is May. But um, the Orb was really popular. That was one thing I I had been oblivious to. But in the UK, their follow-up album, their their first the Adventures Beyond the Ultra World album was successful. And Reynolds calls it an unabashed return of cosmic rock. But their follow-up, U.F.Orb, went straight to number one on the UK album charts. And their single, Blue Room, went to number eight. Um, And Reynolds talks about being a 40-minute song, but it wasn't a 40-minute version that went to number eight on the charts. There's a a regular single-length version. Um, But he sums up the Orb as, quote, an alternative pop universe where Pink Floyd, Brian Eno, and King Tubby formed a 70s supergroup. And that's kind of what the Orb was going for. And the King Tubby influence, um, you know, King Tubby, one of the great dub producers of Jamaica in the 70s, this causes us what Reynolds terms a plague of digidub to come out and he spends quite a bit of time sort of dissing this genre he, he does give shout outs to the orb and higher intelligence agency's ketamine entity and the original rockers underwater world of Jacques Cousteau um, but he compares this whole genre of, of, of techno dub uh he says it's similar to jazz funk and funk metal, one of hybrids, one of those hybrids that only seems like a good idea. And then he goes on to a uh, long riff to kind of explaining some of his theories as to why it uh, didn't work out. And again, I think like jazz funk and funk metal, there are good things in the pile. It's just that the overall weight of the pile kind of drowns that stuff out. And and one of his points about DigiDub was that the original dub was taking live bands in a studio and jacking with them with analog sound effects, massive reverb and 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 different things that you could do with stuff you had hardwired yourself. And Scratch Perry and King Tubby and people like that were kind of mad scientists in there, but it was all analog. And so even as distorted and changed as it is, there's a real natural sound base to it. And, it and it was very hard to replicate with synthesizers and and that's kind of one of reynolds beefs and then he goes into a whole thing about um you know the way fetuses experience reality in the womb and stuff from <laughs> Freud about the ego state and and you know that ambient music is recreating this this uh like state when your ego is aware of existence but can't separate you as an individual from the rest of the universe and
1: these so, are some yeah. of my favorite parts of the book, honestly. I feel like every every other chapter he, he'll go into uh, kind of a a theory on this, and uh, and you know obviously there's not a lot of scientific data to back you know citation needed. I would say maybe more more accurately, but but the idea is solid and and it resonates with me, and I really liked it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's very interesting stuff and well worth reading. And then he gets back to, you know, trashing the genre, but picking out things that he likes to praise. And so he talks about the Irresistible Forces Flying High album as one of the first and best albums of second wave 90s chill out culture and compares it to Spaceman 3's Playing With Fire. And Spaceman 3 is one of these sort of retro bands similar to ones we talked about in the Manchester episode that were very focused on 60s psychedelia and then towards the end, they didn't go Manchester or really rave, but they they're playing with fire album changed the updated their their sound. So they've got electronic elements and it's, you know, if you think Spaceman three is too retro or too rock, check out playing with fire. And then, of course, they go on to be so, uh, spiritualized in sonic boom. But he says, you know, Reynolds says that that influence showed up on the irresistible force forces stuff. And then Mix Master Morris is back again. And he started DJing at these uh, telepathic fish functions, which they were called, quote, ambient tea parties. And um, the first one was such a big success with lines around the block that they had to uh, abandon the venue that they had used. Because essentially, an ambient tea party, nobody's buying alcohol, nobody's spending any money. So bars don't like them so they had to squat and find places um to play and
1: but it it was hard to kind of get a feel for what the events were like because on one hand an ambient tea party sounds very dope but on the other hand there was another uh, quote where he was talking about the whole thing just being like a whole bunch of mattresses lying around and i was just like ah that sounds pretty grimy and uh, I, i would be very interested to see you know i tried to track down some photos and stuff like that and it's just it's too early like the internet internet failed me on that one there but yeah it's it's hard to to figure out whether or not this this had more of like a classy a classy cool futurist feel or if it looked like some kind of horrific opium den, den or something. Well,
0: I mean an opium den would have nice upholstery and whatnot, you know, and silk robes and such like. So, um but yeah, and whenever you see videos from this era, the phenomenon You know, the way a club looks when you're in it and in the darkness with the flashing lights and everything totally changes your perception of it. When you see videotapes somebody took of the same club and you see the dorky fashions that you aren't even cognizant of when you're in, you know, of course, dorky fashions seem timely when you're wearing them, but you don't. You're not seeing the crowd when you're in a dance club. You're seeing the lights and feeling the music and, and, and in your head. But when you watch videotape of it, you can't escape the crowd. And, and it always looks a little bit behind the curtain. You know, you can see kind of how cheesy and cheap the lights are and and stuff. So, it, yeah, it's, it's hard to... Um, you can't recreate the experience you can look at what uh, some of the sensory imprints were but you can't you can't recreate the experience but then he gets into this whole hardcore versus ambient split and again he makes this comparison some of the stuff he talked about in the hardcore chapter he was talking about the mods versus the rockers which was a uh intro working class dispute between the upper and middle working class and the lower working class this one he the the split the british pop culture split he looks back to is when the mods who are about to evolve into skinheads not necessarily nazi skinheads but the the ska skinheads the the racially positive skinheads um against the hippies and so you have these you know the hardcore ravers tend to work all week um they you know they want to party hard when they get free on the weekend and then the hippies though are not working that's kind of the definition of hippiedom and they're and they're um smoking a lot of pot and chilling out so there's there's this perceived difference and one of the big singles of this area we can go ahead and hear this is future sound of london with Papua new guinea that was Future Sound of London with Papua New Guinea, which Reynolds does go out of his way to praise that single. But then he goes out of his way to just trash their album work and their entire approach to music. What was your take on that?
1: Oh, it's just interesting because, like, these albums were reflections of the technological experiments of their time. Everybody was trying to get the most out of their gear software at a time where there were a lot of limitations, no real rules artists were trying the best that they could to escape a lot of the more common conventions of electronic music but obviously they were subconsciously shackled to the taste of their t- of the time you know so it, it's not so much a matter of 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 these albums being great or stand out as it was they were they were important uh, snapshots of the scene at the time, just like everybody had Green Day's Dookie when I went to high school. Everyone had uh, Future Sound of London's life forms. And that was like my group's jam. The number of time we hung out listening to life forms at the end of the night was very high. So, you know, despite the fact that somebody else who didn't have that shared experience might think that it's garbage, uh, it doesn't really bother me because uh, it, it's one of those things where uh you know, uh, he, there's another part where he's talking about uh, the, the the downside of the ambient music and how it all went extremely pastoral. And there was a whole bunch of uh, very stereotypical samples of dry British BBC presentate uh, presentators saying uh, dry things or, or or little snippets of women humming or, or uh, you know, sitars in the background and stuff like that. And he says this is all ridiculous and terrible. But then he'll go in the next paragraph and cheer on the orb or orbital for pulling it off. Right. And it's just a testament to two things. There's like a right and a wrong way to do everything. And what is right and what is wrong is often just subjective to the particular listener uh, and how they receive the music at the time.
0: Absolutely. And, And one album that I went and checked out on his recommendation that was pretty interesting was Ultramarines. Every man and woman is a star from 1991 which he calls the first and best stab at pastoral techno and it mixes acoustic instruments and real world samples of things like owls and bubbling brooks with synth sounds uh, and a lot of roll on 303 and program beats so so you know pretty interesting stuff and he also talks about this character pete namlock who was churning out cds at the rate of two a week and he collaborated with people like mixmaster morris richie houghton out of windsor ontario and others and he says Quite at its best, it was an update of ECM's Chamber Jazz. But at its worst, it was it was a flashback to the Wyndham Hill New Age label. So
1: and it's it interesting. Not- there there are some labels out there that are just that just pump out pump outs. Uh, you know whatever whatever their specific. Uh, niche is they cater to it and they 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 release it and because they release it there's other artists that produce it and it turns into this interesting cyclical thing uh, and and some some of these people basically just take on the, the attitude that they're going to create these uh, labels for volume so that there is a place for it to be to be made and released and there's a reason for it to be made and it ends up being kind of its own self fulfilling prophecy so some people talk crap about you know the labels that put out a whole bunch of stuff but You need one or two of these. Out there doing that in order for for the for the subgenre to hit like a critical mass where where there's enough people making it that that people who want to hear it can hear it regularly, people who are playing it have enough stuff to do. So there's a whole there's a whole kind of interesting. There's a lot of talk about this in the dance music scene as to labels and how much they're releasing and whether or not it's you know just a flash in the pan like Warp was saying with most labels kind of coming in hitting hard and then disappearing, or whether or not you should try to go for a, a smaller or more, uh, more, more permanent catalog base, but uh, you know, or I a can't. niche
0: market like this and this, you know, like I did the episode on elevator music and a second one on psychedelic elevator music. And looking into it, there's always been a big market for easy listening or ambient, you know, or mood music. And Wyndham Hill was was filled that gap in the '80s, kind of after elevator music's classic era had ended and before ambient. Qua Ambient had come along. You know, Wyndham Hill is just mountains of this New Age stuff, and they sold mountains of it. So there's there's people out there listening to it. They just don't tend to be the people who write about and talk about the music they're listening to. But, yeah, it's a significant chunk of the listening audience and an interesting um, factor in the scene. And, and yeah, and so – I used to always get the orbital and the orb confused, um, but but the orbital different group pair of brothers and and he talks about their song Halcyon on and on, and in a section that he calls texturology, which which he talks about how sound in itself had it become the defining obsession of electronic listening music whether this focus on texture and timbre and this goal of synesthesia which is a confusion of the senses when you can taste color or, um you know uh, see sounds that was a common aesthetic goal they shared and it's a ton of people who were associated with richard james um mike paradinas had been on james's reflex label luke filbert of wagon christ was a friend of his from cornwall Tom Middleton of Global Communications and Reload was re- originally the other twin, and Apex twin, um, and all these guys, you know, were um, doing this texturology stuff and active in the electronic music listening scene at the time. And also interesting, he brings up jazz fusion and minimalist composers as influences on these guys. That he brings up Herbie Hancock and Joe Zawinul of Weather Report, and that the jazz fusion guys had created a model of how to do textured what he calls textured groove space so they're early adopters of synthesizers but they were playing with beats they were playing you know funky uh jazz fusion stuff and also the minimalist composers people like philip glass and steve reich and terry Riley. they were kind of the people who figured out how to get people coming back to concert halls after john cage and et al had chased them all away stockhausen and all those guys but they were also early adopters of electronics, and the way that the minimalists would take these short little melodic units and weave a whole bunch of them together and make really complicated pieces out of quite simple ingredients was a big influence on people like Orbital and Future Sound of London. And again, Future Sound of London is somebody who had an early dance floor hit with Stacker Humanoid under a different name. Um, so they could bring the dance when they wanted to, in the early days and Papua New Guinea the one we played Reynolds calls a gorgeous rave
1: album Yeah. And we, we have explosives was also like a really aggressive, uh, kind of at the time. I remember it almost used to give me a headache when I would listen to the, uh, I I listened to, uh, to like a a couple of soundtracks that had it on there. And I used to skip it a lot because it would straight up give me a headache, but man, the sonic scapes in that were, 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 were big and different and, and crisp. And you can understand why these guys were, were influences of their time because, uh, they were really on the cutting edge of, of, of that electronic a sound where where it was where they were doing something that sounded fresh and unique at the time it doesn't date very well because i mean it never really does but uh you know uh, again uh it, future sound of london gets maybe a little bit more slag than maybe they deserve maybe they don't i, I still enjoy yeah. reading it
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it was pretty rough on him and then he he gives and kind of like brewster and broughton uh you know underserved trance to the point that we had to do a whole separate episode on it that didn't draw in their book reynolds kind of tucks trance in um quickly at the end of this chapter he calls it the metronomic underground and uh let's go ahead and hear uh one of the trance tracks that he he singles out this is hard floors experience one And that was hard floor with experience, experience one. Um, and, you know, he points out that that trance is the dance floor oriented body coercive cousin of armchair techno. So, you know, even though one of his big beasts was with armchair techno or intelligent techno was that it had removed itself from the dance floor. He doesn't give trance any points for reconnecting with the dance floor. And the thing to me, going back and listening to trance, which was definitely not a scene I was into at the time. As boy does it sound like EDM from the 2010s. Like of all the genres we've heard so far in the series, it's almost like trance is the most prophetic of what's going to be popular 15 years after the fact. So it's kind of interesting. You know, he gives hardcore big points for leading to jungle and drum and bass, but it's like he doesn't give trance any big points for going on to become a massive genre. And, it, and even in the foreword, he says, you know, if I was going to redo this book, I would pay more attention to trance. And
1: I mean, yeah, at, f- at first I felt I was even confused as to kind of how trance ended up getting tacked on in this chapter. But then it it really started to make sense to me from from the, the overarching arc of this chapter is, is it, it starts to talk about that electronic listening music and then it slides into the ambient music and then it kind of talks about how you have these parties and events in London where you're having chill rooms and you're having chill events but then eventually the chill events start you know picking up the beat a little bit again and you have all these artists like as you'll know notice in all the the song samples there's not a lot of ambience in these ambient tracks there's always a beat there's always a bit of a of a dance element that always kind of pulls this music back into that territory and what trance music is as far as simon reynolds is is kind of explaining in this chapter is it's that correction back it was in hardcore and that was too ridiculous and we went to armchair techno which was a bit too like light and nothing and now we've corrected back into a place where you can have kind of uh something you know a couple steps above armchair techno but definitely not hardcore and this is this is the this is kind of the environment that trance came into and and the environment where it was able to flourish.
0: Yeah, he calls it rave music purged of cheesy raviness. So there's no breakbeats, no samples, no riff stabs, no anthemic choruses and no, quote, eat up sentimentality. And it's also very European sound like they. Vocally pro- proclaim their loyalty to Detroit. And I think it's kind of fitting since Detroit was such a Europhile scene, even though they were African-Americans. They were very, you know, Kraftwerk and and, and groups like Yellow and, and things like that were very much key influences on the Detroit techno scene. So I think it's a logical thing. But re- according to Reynolds, like Trance took the whitest, most Kraftwerk aspects of techno. And I don't like the white, black uh, ascribing racial Characteristics to music, but I know why people do it, and also the uh, 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 combining that craftwork side of techno with the four-four rhythms of house, like taking the funk out of it and just the thud 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 uh, beat. And he talks about going to see what was billed as a proper techno night in uh, 1992 at the S1 Club, SW1 Club, with DJs Colin Favor and Colin Dale and his reaction to that. And that was his exposure. And there was clubs like this all over Europe, Eurobeat 2000, Last, Final Frontier, The Orbit, Pure and Deep Space. Uh, You had labels like Plus 8, which is Richie Hotton. Uh, out of Windsor, Ontario, which we'll talk about next week when we talk about the second wave of Detroit techno. You've got Jacks Up in Holland, uh, Tresor and Labworks in Germany, and it's interesting that you put Goa in the last chapter because, uh, like, uh, I found a number of videos online that link Goa and trance that people were sort of doing the exact same thing Paul Oakenfold et al did when they tried to bring the Balearic scene to London. People who had been to Goa. India come back and want to bring that trance vibe to London. So people were deliberately trying to design clubs. So to get that experience of basically frying on acid and dancing your vacation away and then trying to figure out how can we replicate this for people who have to be at work in the morning and kind of managed to do it. And trance is uh, one of the things. And it's also the resurgence of the Roland 303, that squelchy bass simulator that made the original acid bass sounds for people like Future you know, he talks about 1991's Munda Musique's Acid Pandemonium single as a precursor of this, but then the one we heard, Hard Floor's Hard Trance Experience, really exploded the revival.
1: And you can kind of hear the difference between uh, the Detroit acid techno and then uh basically what we're just labeling as as trance, and that there's there's definitely more of a trance like element to it this is this is one of those things where it's always difficult to pin trance down because what is trance and the reason that it seems to you can kind of apply it to everything uh through all the years and it, you can always kind of say well this this latest iteration of electronic dance music is just trance with extra notes. Uh, and it's, it's because trance ended up being kind of put into a box with anything or, or, you know, the the box was spilled all over the place where anything with a melody and a bit of a trance like feel to it. And that was going fast enough to remove the funk from, from it ended up being labeled trance, you know, going back to that comment about, you know, trance being so white. And I think, uh, one of the guys from above and beyond has a, has an interesting quote where he says that just above 140 beats per minute, there's no more funk. And, and I yeah. think that's, that's basically where any, time they kind of say that, oh, they took the black out of it. It's like, okay, well, they're just talking about, it. it's not funky. And it, to be fair at that speed, you can't really have, have the funk. And it's so, I don't, you know, I, I don't really like it being explained that way either because, uh, you know, I would like to imagine my chosen electronic genre of the, of the past generation being like more open and, and less like culturally, uh, culturally bland than that but you know i see what they're saying i understand what they mean
0: yeah and he also points out that trance is quote trippy in both the lsd and motoric senses of the word (laughs) so it's taking the the listener on a journey or taking the dancer on a journey both sort of spiritually with the the acid mystical and mysticism is a big part of this whole scene but also a, a physical journey and it's interesting because that's true, but he also complains that trance doesn't have resolutions in the numbers that, that you know, even the tracks are, are sort of metronomic and, and have these peaks, but they don't have valleys maybe. It's just this sort of constant building thing and, and trying to get you into a trance state. So it's not going to have a lot of dynamics. Um, just just comes with the territory. And, he, and then he goes out of his way to sort of a diss, um jam and spoon. And then really bags on Sven Vath, who um, I enjoy. I remember his Accident in Paradise album being another one that got the kind of reviews in the rock magazine. So that I was like, okay, I'll check this stuff out. And I, you know, enjoyed that album. I think I probably listened to it more than I listened to my Apex twin CD. Um, but he does then point out that it seems like he has a case that's that's Vath's um follow-up album, The Harlequin, the Dancer and the Robot is extremely pretentious and 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 hard to take and
1: well if, if i if i get one good album out of an out of an artist especially an electronic music artist like if if they're out there giving me a bunch of really great singles and dj sets and everything out of the out of the, over the years and then i get one artist album that's great like that's already that's already head and shoulders above most of the guys so you know i i, I give guys uh some some slack when it comes to you know putting out uh, probably a a, a label required uh, artist album that may not live up to a past masterpiece.
0: Yeah. And and he also, you know, Sven Vath is somebody whose role is a DJ. Like he was famous for playing these 24 hour sets at the Omen in Frankfurt, co-founder of the Hard House and IQ labels. Um, I think Reynolds view Reynolds habit of viewing producer-centric view I think devalues Sven Vath somewhat because if you see him as a whole his work as a DJ um, in addition to his work as a producer he becomes a much more significant and, and pop, you know, pop, important figure.
1: Yeah. He was definitely one of the first guys that was out there, uh, flogging the sound. And he was also one of the guys jumping back and forth between, between Goa, India and, and Germany and the UK. And he was moving around and he was kind of mixing it all together. And, uh, the guys really just, uh, just kind of an ambassador for trance and it's really funny how how recently well maybe not recently i guess it's the last 10 years or so sven vath is now like really good friends with richie houghton who's like uh, kind of a, a techno equivalent of, of sven vath and richie houghton uh, a, a techno pioneer who fell into minimal techno in, in a way where he took it so seriously he got into contemporary or, or avant-garde art and, and, and minimalist art as far as paintings and 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 everything like that goes and he tried to take that and recreate that in his music. And he got real dry for a while. And then he moved to Germany and became friends with Sven Vath. And now he's like completely re-embraced like the full richness of of what techno can be. Because like trance, techno can be a pretty wide variety of things. And uh, he seems much happier now with Sven at his side doing a whole bunch of wacky stuff and and having fun again. Uh, And I I attribute that to the fact that Vath is is such a, a positive, force in the in the trance scene and he's able to kind of show you beyond maybe uh some some of those ideas that you have about dance music needing to be armchair in order to be intelligent
0: cool and we'll hear much more about richie Hutton, not next week like i said earlier but in two weeks when we talk about the future sound of detroit next week we'll be talking about slipping into darkness the sound of dark core but let's wrap it up uh today reynolds has a little closing section and he says that the intelligent techno versus hardcore house was a bitter contest waged across class and generational lines to decide who owned EDM and what direction it should pursue. It was nonstop ecstatic dancing versus sedate contemplation, the 12-inch single versus the album, the audience and its demands to dance versus the auteur and his uh, you know drive to create a unique vision. So I'd have to score it a tie, honestly. I probably enjoyed the hardcore stuff. Maybe a little bit more, but I think that was because I hadn't heard it that much since that so much of that stuff was 12 inches that hadn't been collected, certainly didn't come across my raucous radar when I was looking for CDs and full-length albums, whereas this scene was one, even without – I wasn't even seeing it in the context of dance music. I was just seeing it as, uh, in the context of innovative new CDs you could buy at the record store, and so I was a little bit more aware of this scene, but I did enjoy going back to it. I think Reynolds is a little bit hard on it. I think he's right though that the that the fatal flaw of this scene was when they started out from an exclusionary basis no breakbeats no lycra without meaning to they they're excluding women and black people and that once you start excluding then it becomes easy to as they say take a trip up your own arse as some of these artists did and i did actually go back and listen to the harlequin the dancer and the robot all the way through and um, based on an initial listen it reminded me very much of yes's uh, top, of gra- top of graphic oceans or whatever the triple yes album that that uh, people always use is this is why we don't like prog, prog rock but anyway they yeah, chance- was
1: probably trying to do a little bit of a new wave new wave nod in there because you know the guy had been around for a while so i imagine at a at a certain point you want to try and like touch on maybe some of those those mainstream influ- more mainstream influences that have brought you to where you are now
0: yeah tried to loop it all back together and and you know sometimes you swing for the fences and you it. so that's this is our look at uh, intelligent techno we'll be back next week to talk about dark core for ryan harkness i'm nate wilcox we'll see you next time
2: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at Podcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to discuss Rave's journey to the dark side in 1992 and 1993. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.